good evening. This is the Wine of Life podcast. Uh, it's been a while, but um, today I would like to uh, go over the subject of the authority of scriptures. I'm not going to use terms like sola scriptura, prima scriptura. It's going to go from a, a, a general idea that the Bible is the sole authority, sole infallible authority for both faith and morals uh, for the Christian. Uh, well, for everyone, but uh, particularly for the Christian. And so we're going to look at um, the, the perspective of the Roman Catholic Church and the perspective of the Eastern Orthodox Church, and we're going to um, discuss what the later um, uh, Protestant groups, there are many groups, but uh, all of their ideas about why Scripture should be the final authority for faith and morals, and uh, that is the position I hold. I think it's the correct um I think that's the correct perspective, but we're going to go. We're going to use um, these two books here. We're going to use the Catholic Catechism that came out after the um, Second Vatican Council, and then we're going to use this um, Eastern Orthodox theology by um, this contemporary reader by Daniel Clendenin that he put out um, to discuss both of these uh, perspectives, and then I'm going to go over the scriptures and why I believe that the scripture should be the sole authority for us. So I'm going to start out in the Catechism. We're going to start on page 29 here. <clears throat> Very early on, within the Catechism, it discusses apostolic tradition and the Scriptures. So in the apostolic tra- uh, preaching, in keeping with the Lord's command, the Gospel was handed down in two ways. This is the belief of the Roman Church. Uh, orally, which is the apostles who handed on by the spoken word of their preaching, by the example they gave by the institutions they established what they themselves had received, whether from the lips of Christ, from his way of life and his works, or whether they had learned it as the prompting of the Holy Spirit. The second way is in writing. Those apostles and other men associated with the apostles under the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit committed the message of salvation to writing. And so that's how they have um, those ideas, and um, you say, well, where do they get the idea of the oral tradition passed down? We're going to read from Second um, Thessalonians 2. This is what uh, scriptures have to say about that. Let me get there. I'm in First Thessalonians here. All right, Second Thessalonians 2.15. This is Paul speaking. He says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So that is their perspective, and they believe that that, um, the oral tradition is still something that we can pass on and that is still something alive in the church. Now, I'm going to discuss about that later, why, uh, what I think that that oral uh, tradition is supposed to be. But uh, continuing on, In order that the full and living gospel might always be preserved in the church, the apostles left bishops as their successors. They gave them their own position of teaching authority. And so the bishops then have a particular authority to teach in the Roman Catholic Church, and uh, they can teach things within Scripture. They can interpret Scripture in an infallible way, uh, or they can teach the apostolic tradition that was passed down orally. And so this is something pretty different than we have. So they have what they call the magisterium, and the magisterium decides, um, they interpret, they believe that they have the ability to infallibly interpret 
the scriptures and to infallibly interpret the uh, oral tradition and to then make things binding upon you. And they get that from um, the Gospels discussing that the apostles were given the right to bind and to loose and to forgive sins and so on and so forth. And they believe that there is a succession passed down in the office. So it's not just the idea that um, apostolic succession, mainly for, say, a Protestant would be, um, the doctrine of the apostles passed down. So the faith of the apostles is something that's passed down. For the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, they believe that it's not just the faith and the teaching, but the actual office. So there's a certain amount of authority, although they don't count the bishops to have the to be identical to apostles, they do count their offices to be succeeded upon. So they believe that um, they have the same sort of authority that the apostles would have had. And so they can bind you by making uh, dogmatic pronouncements and things like that. And there's a whole lot of stuff to the, um, to the magisterium. Um, if you want to check out that, you can look at people like Michael Lofton on Reason and Theology. I think he's doing uh, some sort of doctorate or paper on um, the different levels of magisterium authority. There's like extraordinary magisterium and ordinary magisterium and the conciliar magisterium and all that. So it's very complicated and uh, it's outside of my expertise or understanding, but that's how they see and that's how the Pope can still make dogmatic statements today, even about things that you might not find in Scripture or will be hard to find in Scripture, um, like things like the various Marian dogmas. That's how they're able to do it. They have authority. And uh, we would say that's not correct. The Bible doesn't say that, and the Bible needs to be the authority. And so that's how th they move down the line. I'm going to keep going here. Uh, they believe the heritage of this faith is a sacred deposit contained in Holy Scripture and tradition to the whole of the church. By adhering to this heritage, the entire holy people united to its pastors, so you have to be in fellowship with particular bishops, uh, remains always faithful to the teaching of the apostles, to the brotherhood, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So in maintaining, practicing, and professing the faith that has been handed on, there should be a harmony between the bishops and the faithful. And so the bishops have this authority. You have to be in fellowship with those bishops by adhering to the various uh, doctrines that they pass down. And that can either be from Scripture or from tradition. So the task of giving an authentic interpretation of the Word of God, whether in its written form or in the form of tradition, has been entrusted to the living teaching office of the church alone. And this office is kept by the bishops. So its authority in this matter is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. And this means that the task of interpretation has been entrusted to the bishops who are in communion with the successor of Peter, the Bishop of Rome. So the Bishop of Rome is the boss of all of these other bishops. And so they have an authority to tell you exactly how something should be interpreted and how, whether that be in word or in tradition. So this magisterium is not superior to the word of God, but is its servant. Um, which is an interesting way to put it. I would slightly disagree with that, how they have it, but that's what it says in the Catechism. It says it teaches only what has been handed on to it, and that's where we would disagree. We would disagree that some of the oral traditions have been handed down. But at the divine command, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, it listens to this devotedly, 
guards it with dedication, and expounds it faithfully, all that it proposes for belief as being divinely revealed is drawn from this single deposit of faith. So a single deposit of faith means that both the tradition and the word are viewed as equals. Um, they're both um, claimed to be inspired by the Holy Spirit, and then the magisterium uh, through the, the, the bishops who have to adhere and be in communion with the Bishop of Rome, who is the See of Peter. They decide what you have to keep, what you have to not keep, and uh, that is something that we would um, wholeheartedly disagree with. But in terms of the inspiration of Scripture, they claim that God is the author of sacred Scripture. The divinely revealed realities contained and presented in the text of sacred Scripture have been handed down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Mother Church, relying on the faith of the apostolic age, accepts as sacred and canonical the books of the Old and New Testament, whole and entire, with all their parts, on the grounds that written on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They have God as their author and have been handed on as such to the church herself. Now, we do have some uh, issues uh, with regards to what we consider the canon, what they consider the canon. They have a different Old Testament canon than we do. I'm not going to go into all of that and how that came about, but they do have a different canon. But nevertheless... They have a very similar idea of, of the fact that the scriptures are inspired. And so they believe in the inerrancy of scripture, but they believe in the infallibility of the magisterium. And that's where we have a different uh, opinion there in that we would not say that there is some office that has this right that is protected by the Holy Spirit that can infallibly um, interpret every aspect of scripture. And so, um, interpretation then seen within the so-called living tradition, we'll get to that point. It says here, um, we are to read the scripture within the living tradition of the whole church. According to a saying of the fathers, sacred scripture is written principally in the church's heart rather than in documents and records. For the church carries in her tradition living memorial of God's word and is the Holy Spirit who gives her the spiritual interpretation of the scripture according to the spiritual meaning which this uh, spirit grants to the church. So this is a claim, and that comes from origin, um, this is a claim that the church possesses um, the Holy Spirit in a way that allows her to infallibly interpret what's in the scriptures. And so the church then is represented by these bishops who then can make uh, decisions on how one ought to act, what the faith of one ought to be. And so we see things like um, a, a Marian dogma, for instance, if you don't believe in the Immaculate Conception, you're outside of the faith or you've made shipwreck of your faith. They can make pronouncements like that. And those are things that um, we don't find in scripture and um, we would say it's not even hinted at in Scripture, but they believe it to be necessary and binding because they believe they have that particular um, they believe they have that particular type of uh, authority. So the magisterium, then, um, the church is seen as the pillar and bulwark of the truth, and that also comes from Timothy, and we'll talk about that verse later. Um, it has received this solemn command of God from the apostles to announce the saving truth. To the church belongs the right always and everywhere to announce moral principles, including those pertaining to the social order, to make judgment on any human affairs to the extent they are required by the fundamental rights of the human person or the salvation of souls. So that's the amount of 
um, authority that the magisterium holds within the Catholic Church. The magisterium of the pastors of the church, these are the bishops, in moral matters is ordinarily exercised in catechesis and preaching with the help of the works of theologians and spiritual authors, thus from generation to generation under the ages and vigilance of the pastors, the deposit of Christian moral teaching has been handed uh, on, a deposit composed of a characteristic body of rules and commandments, virtues proceeding from faith in Christ and animated by charity, alongside the creed and the Our Father. The basis for this catechesis has traditionally been the Decalogue, which sets out the principles for morals uh, and life valid for all men. Uh, so the supreme degree of participation and the authority of Christ is ensured by the charism charism of infallibility and that's what it's talking about the church possesses this infallibility extends as far as does the deposit of divine revelation so the the inerrancy of scripture is side by side with the um, church's authority which it possesses an infallibility it extends to all the elements of doctrine including morals without which the saving truths of the faith cannot be preserved explained or observed and so this is where we would disagree when we start talking about the sufficiency of scripture the sufficiency of scripture um, that it teaches us clearly and that is something that we um, would teach uh, opposite of what they would say is that the scriptures themselves clearly state what we ought to believe and how we ought to live so our faith and our morals our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy can be found in Scripture without someone external. Now, that doesn't mean that we know everything in Scripture, that each individual has their own ability. There obviously are traditions and ideas that, and, and boundaries that we create within our own context and culture and so on and so forth. But the same faith, we would say, the same faith that, say, the apostles would have, the same Christ they believed in, the same Holy Spirit that was given to them is the same one given to us, whether or not we are in fellowship with those bishops or not. And so that's why the breaking off from Rome occurred, um, not just because there were doctrinal issues. There were also authority issues that people like Luther had with uh, Rome, uh, Zwingli had with Rome, and then later on, um, you know, like the Church of England. So the the Reformation was was just as much about authority as it was about particular types of doctrines um, because those doctrines were set down on the basis that the church claimed that uh, the church in Rome claimed that it had uh, a particular type of authority and now the other one I think is um, particularly important is about the canon of scripture it says it was by the apostolic tradition that the church discerned which writings are to be included in the list of the sacred books. This complete list is called the canon of Scripture. Now, the canon of Scripture is all of our Old and New Testament. Now, the re- we, we have some uh, arguments about that as well, because um, some within the Roman Church, not everybody, but some would say that the Church itself gave us the Scriptures. Uh, we would also wholeheartedly disagree with that, because... The church is built upon the scriptures, according to Ephesians 2, read like Ephesians 2, 20 or so. There's Jesus Christ as our foundation, and then we're built upon the apostles and the prophets. And so the apostles and the prophets are their writings and their teachings. And so the teachings precede the building of the church. And so we would disagree that the um, 
tradition of the church is what allowed us to have the canon. Now, obviously, there wasn't like an official so-called canon, but there were things that were already acknowledged to be scripture um, prior to the church making its own um, making its own claims about what the canon was or wasn't. So that's how the Roman Catholic. That's very brief and not. Um, not extensive or anything or exhaustive, but they have this idea of living tradition and scripture. They exist on a, a level playing field. They are interpreted infallibly by this magisterium that they have, which consists of the bishops and is headed up by the Bishop of Rome. And so they can make uh, commandments and bind the rest of the faithful because of the authority that they have due to apostolic succession. Now, the Eastern Orthodox is different, because the Eastern Orthodox does not acknowledge the authority of the Pope. They don't have um, uh, a bishop that heads up everything. There's a, their, their authority is they believe the infallibility that the Church possesses, and they believe that this infallibility is shown through the various councils. So there are seven um, councils that are considered um, ecumenical, and I'm going to go through the book here. This is written by George Florovsky. Um, he was a Russian um, uh, priest and theologian. And um, I'm just going to go through uh, an article that was taken out for, that was put together by this Mr. Clendenin here. Um, the Authority of the Ancient Councils and the Tradition of the Fathers. I'll show you there. Um, but it says this, There was no conciliary theory in the ancient church, no elaborate theology of the councils, and even no fixed canonical regulations. The councils of the early church in the first three centuries were occasional meetings convened for special purposes, usually in the situation of urgency to discuss particular items or uh, to particular items of common concern. They were events rather than an institution. Or to use the phrase of the late Gregory Dix, in the pre-Nicene times, councils were an occasional device with no certain place in the scheme of church government. Of course, it was commonly assumed and agreed already at that time that meeting and consultations of bishops representing or personifying their local churches or communities was a proper and normal method to manifest and to achieve unity and consent in matters of faith and discipline. And so what they're saying is, is that there was no, I know that in the scriptures we see in Acts 15, we have a council called the Council of Jerusalem. Now, after that, various times when there were major um, uh, problems within the church, like heresies, they would meet together. Various bishops and pastors would decide to meet together in one particular place, and they would try and figure out how to deal with this particular heresy. Uh, they would formulate, um, uh, they would take uh, teachings from church fathers and so on and formulate ways um, to say what was the right um, doctrine or not. And there are seven of these that are accepted. And basically, even within Protestantism, we accept mainly the first four. Some accept the first six. Um, but they have to do with the way that we discuss doctrine. Um, and so what level of infallibility do they possess? For them, they'd, they, they possess complete infallibility. Uh, but we'll talk about why there's an issue with that later. But it says the sense of the unity of the church was strong in early times, although it was not reflected on an organizational level. The collegiality of the bishops was assumed in principle, and the concept of the Episcopatus Unus was already in the process of formation. And that is very key, that someone in the East is actually acknowledging this. The roles of bishops 
as they are now, where uh, that you have a bishop over an entire area, was something that was a development. And now you can read even Roman Catholic scholars like even Duffy or um, Patrick Sullivan, who will acknowledge that even in the early t- uh, period of the early church in Rome, there was not a single bishop. There was a college of presbyters or a college of bishops. And in Scripture, these terms are interchangeable. Now, that doesn't mean that having a bishop in and of itself is wrong. And of course, there's uh, Ignatius of Antioch, which is used a lot as a defense. But I don't think it's a defense for the East or the West um, in terms of how they view the bishop. Because he was talking about a bishop within a particular congregation, not a bishop over an entire area. Uh, mainly what we would call sort of like a senior pastor, a head pastor. That's what he was urging instead of a college of of bishops. And um, so even here, it's he's acknowledging here that the the role of the bishop was a process and a formation. And so is it wrong to have a bishop? I would say no. We have all sorts of things that we've developed over time, things like youth pastor or uh, executive pastor, these sorts of things. We have all these things that we've developed. Are they wrong for the time and place that you're in? Of course they're not. But that doesn't mean they possess a divine right. They're not a divine right. They're something that has formed and developed over time. And so you can have them, but you can't claim that they possess some sort of infallibility on that basis. So he says, bishops of a particular era used to meet for the election and congregation uh, of new bishops. Foundations were laid for the future provincial or metropolitan system. And so early on, foundations were being made for that system to come to pass, but that system was not inherent to the scriptures. It's something that developed, and that is a reason why we believe that it is something reformable and not something that we should be bound to. So we would also find ourselves not in fellowship with either the Bishop of Rome or the bishops of the Eastern Orthodox Church. So, uh, But all this was rather a spontaneous movement. It seems that councils came into existence first in Asia Minor by the end of the 2nd century in the period of intensive defense against the spread of the new prophecy that is of the Montanist enthusiastic explosion. And so from there, when we get to the 4th century, we have the empire forming, and after Constantine, the legalization of the Christian faith. And so the first major council was the Council of Nicaea. So in this situation, the first general council was convened at the Great Council of Nicaea. It was to become the model for all later councils. The new established position of the church necessitated ecumenical action, precisely because Christian life was now lived in the world, which was no longer organized on a basis of localism, but of the empire as a whole. So there's another acknowledgement that the churches themselves functioned in a local way, the way we'd have it now, but because of the formation of the empire and the spread of Christianity all over the world, it was necessary to put together certain uh, constant rules of faith, and that was why they had the first um, council. So because the church had come out into the world, the local churches had to learn uh, to live no longer as self-contained units. So he's acknowledging that the early church were, were local and self-contained units. He says, as in practice, though not in theory, they had largely lived like this in the past. So in the past, there were local governments just like we would claim that they do now, something that was a major part of the um, what became a major part of the Reformation, but as parts now of a vast spiritual government within one uh, empire. So in a certain sense, the general councils, as inaugurated at Nicaea, 
may be described as imperial councils. And this was probably the first and original meaning of the term ecumenical as applied to the council. So this is an Eastern uh, priest saying this. This is not uh, me as a Protestant trying to trying to convince people of this stuff. So it is significant that no attempt to develop a legal or canonical theory of general counsel as a seat of ultimate authority with specific competence and models of procedure was made in the 4th century or later, although they were de facto acknowledged as a proper channel for dealing with questions of faith and doctrine and as an authority on these matters. It will be no exaggeration to suggest that councils were never regarded as a canonical institution, but rather as occasional charismatic events. And so, we see here again, he's acknowledging that they were not meant to be things of canonical rule. They became that later. Um, which again, I think, it, that, that's a huge deal for um, the way that we view history, considering the way that councils are viewed now, and considering the way that the churches view councils and the way the bishops view their own authority. Um, so the claims of the councils were accepted or rejected in the church not on formal or canonical ground, and the verdict of the church was highly selective. The council is not above the church. That was the attitude of the ancient church. The council is precisely a representation. This explains why the ancient church never appealed to conciliary authority in general or in abstracto, but always to particular councils, or rather to their faith and witness, uh, Vez Congar has published an excellent article on the primacy of the first four ecumenical councils, and the evidence he has collected is highly instructive. In fact, the dogmatic rulings of Nicaea, Ephesus, and Chalcedon were afforded normative, uh, normative priority precisely because they were felt to be a faithful and adequate expression of the perennial commitment of faith as once delivered unto the church. Again, the stress was not so much on canonical authority, but on the truth, and this leads us to the most intricate and crucial problem, what is the criteria of the Christian truth? And that is what our claim would be. The reason why you would accept the councils is not because the councils possess authority over and above the word of God. The word of God is the authority by which you measure the councils. So if the councils made uh, a way that they formulated the Trinity or the person of Christ in Christology, uh, we would accept those councils if they were stated in a way that reflected biblical truth. If they were something that didn't, we would reject it, which is why Protestants would accept the first six councils, but they would reject the seventh because the seventh has to do with... Um, relics and icons and so on, things that we simply don't find in the Bible, and claims, uh, dogmatic claims about the necessity of venerating those things um, for salvation, which we, we don't find that in Scripture anywhere, and so that would be an addition to Scripture, so we don't accept it. And that's what the criteria then of truth is. The criteria of truth has to be the Scriptures, and that that's where we would uh, disagree uh, with some of the things that the uh, current Eastern and Western church would say. So I'm going to go here. Uh, he carries on. He says, It must be kept in mind that the main, if not also the only manual of faith and doctrine, was in the ancient church precisely the Holy Writ, and that is the Scriptures. And for that reason, the renowned interpreters of Scriptures were regarded as fathers in an eminent sense. And so he's saying why the, he was talking about why the church fathers are, are given a, a certain place in history within the church, why they're important. But the fact is, is that the early church, all they had was scripture. They had nothing else. There were no councils. And that's what we're talking about. I think Calvin 
uh, said that um, we want to go back to the purity of the fourth century. Uh, but I would even reject that. I would say we want to go all the way back to before that. We want to start where the apostles started, and we want to have the same faith that the apostles had, not that which was passed on, but we want to live solely by the Holy Writ. We want to live solely by the Scriptures, and that's why we claim that the Scriptures themselves have um, author- uh, sole authority over our faith and our life above all of the other various authorities put in place by the church. So the fathers were the true inspirers of the councils, whether they were present or in absentia, or often even after they had gone to eternal rest. For that reason, in this sense, the councils used to emphasize that they were following the Holy Fathers, as Chalcedon says. So the basis of those those councils were based on the theology that the Holy Fathers had put together, the Church Fathers, from their study of Scripture. And so they used that to be the basis of their um, council. So now I'm going to go into Vladimir Lossky and talk about how they view the tradition. Um, I think he's really, really an interesting writer. I I actually really love uh, reading him. Uh, He was also from Russia, but he went to Paris. He had to leave because of um, communism. And uh, he ended up in Paris and some other places. And he was a theologian and and a priest as well. But he says, to distinguish doesn't always mean to separate or even oppose. So he's talking about scripture and tradition. He says, in opposing tradition to scripture as two sources of revelation, the polemicist of the Counter-Reformation. He's talking about the Catholics, um, people like uh, Ignatius of Loyola and the Jesuits who started a Counter-Reformation against the Protestants. He says it put themselves from the start on the same ground as the Protestant adversaries in that they tacitly recognize in tradition a reality other than that of Scripture. So if we think about the East, they don't view tradition and Scripture as being separate at all. They view them as being identical. And so the Roman Church claims that tradition and Scripture are separate and that the living Church through the magisterium has the ability to um, infallibly teach either one in an appropriate way or the right way for faith and morals. Uh, here he's saying that the East, now he has kind of a Western bias, he's against the, the West a little bit, but he's saying that the East, the Eastern Church, believes that tradition and Scripture are one and the same. They, they are viewed in the same way. He, he makes it like this. Jesus is the Word of God, which he then compares to the written scriptures. And the Holy Spirit is the living breath of God, which he places in the, in the way of how you see tradition. So that's how he, see, he sees them as two parts like that, as two parts, but that are one and the same. And so that sort of can change your... Um, that, that's where there's a little bit of a different perspective with regards to how the East views the West, and the West might disagree with that. But again, this isn't me saying that. This is them. So he says, once again, uh, we return to this idea of the sufficiency of Scripture. But here there's nothing negative. It does not exclude, but it assumes the church with its sacraments, institutions, and teachings transmitted by the apostles. So again, he's saying that the sufficiency of Scripture is also found in the sufficiency of tradition because they're not separate things. He says, nor does this sufficiency, this pl- pleroma, of the scripture, which is the sort of the harmony of the scripture, exclude any other expressions of the same truth which the church could produce, just as the fullness of Christ, the head of the church, 
does not exclude the church the complement of his glorious humanity. One knows that the defenders of the holy images founded the possibility of Christian iconography on the fact of the incarnation of the word. Icons, just as well as the scriptures, are expressions of the inexpressible and have become possible thanks to the revelation of God, which was accomplished in the incarnation of the Son. The same holds good for the dogmatic definitions, the exegesis, the liturgy for all in the church of Christ that participates in the same fullness of the word as is contained in the scriptures. In this totalitarian quality of the incarnate word, all that expresses the revealed truth is thus related to Scripture. Moreover, if all were in fact to become Scripture, the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. So in this sort of semi-defense of the of icons, he's saying that everything that the Eastern Church would take out that would be tradition is taken directly from the Scriptures. And so even the, the veneration of icons is something that would be found not explicitly in Scripture, but can be taken from Scripture. Um we have some we have some pretty big um, difference of opinion about that. Um, so it's the condition of the church's having an infallible consciousness. It is not a mechanism which will infallibly make known the truth outside and above the consciousness of individuals, outside all deliberation, all judgment. So again, the church is seen here. The Eastern Church claims that they possess an infallibility, and so. We have some really, really big um, issues that we completely disagree on, that we just can't um, come to a conclusion where we accept it the same. But I want to talk first, because I know there's a lot of people who've been moving to the the Catholic Church and moving into the Orthodox Church, and uh, they sort of look on these two traditions in with sort of um you know rose tinted glasses and say they have the old ways a lot of the stuff they do is very ancient which is very true but there are some problems um with tradition itself in that uh there are issues with regards to how tradition is um understood so for instance um there are many church fathers who don't necessarily believe uh that rome has this primacy that they claim to have. And uh, so uh, there are also issues within the councils. The councils are uh, allegedly, the seven councils are held by both the Roman Church and the Eastern Church, and yet Pope Leo I uh, protested against the 28th uh, canon of the Council of Chalcedon. There was also issues about the third canon of the Council of of, um, Constantinople in 381. But he... uh, he protested against it because it claimed that uh, the uh, the Sea of Constantinople could be above um, the Sea of uh, Alexandria and, I believe, Antioch. And he was saying that that's not right. And he, they were also saying that it was the second Rome and that Rome really only had the primacy they have because of the position they had within the empire. And so the Roman Church, of course, completely disagrees with that, believes that it comes from a biblical scriptural basis that the See of Peter um, has a primacy over all of the other bishops. But we have the other issue of the fact that the See of Antioch also claims that Peter established the church at Antioch. And so why would not the bishop of Antioch have the same level of uh, authority as the bishop of Rome? Um, these are major uh, issues of discussion. We also have the issue that's going on even right now. The Bishop of Moscow, the, or the Patriarch of Moscow, 
uh, is claiming that the Patriarch of Constantinople is in schism. He's also claimed the uh, Patriarch in Alexandria is in schism because they're fighting over who has um, territorial uh, possession of the churches in Ukraine. And so they're having this issue. And who can decide these problems? Uh, the church canons, some say the church canons show that Constantinople is wrong. Constantinople says that the the scriptures and the idea of the first among equals, sort of a teaching from the church fathers, shows that he is the first among equals amongst the, the patriarchs, and so therefore he has the ability to make decisions that the others don't. So they're having this fight. So the idea that um, tradition somehow... Uh, is right in it somehow is just uh, the way that we should look and that the the church possesses an infallibility I think is shown not just in the claims of doctrine but also in the morality right and and a Catholic will tell you uh, only a third of the popes are canonized a lot of them were extremely immoral a lot of the bishops we find in history of other of other areas of other seas were also immoral and did immoral things things that we would consider to be unchristlike and perhaps weren't even Christians they weren't even believers and so the idea that tradition holds this infallibility that the councils must have been right about every single thing uh, just simply doesn't hold up from, from history we, uh, they have major major disagreements about um, very very important things like does the Bishop of Rome have complete power? Uh, is he prim- is, is, does he have a primacy over the other bishops? They still argue about this, and they're still in schism, right? And they, they have the schism from the Filioque in 1054. So there's all sorts of problems with holding on to saying that tradition uh, and this sort of magisterium holds an infallibility, because even within Catholicism they have problems. The papal claim of infallibility himself as, as the office... Um, the old Catholic split from them. Um, they have issues going on right now with the traditional um, Latin Mass, which um, Pope Francis has decided to uh, not let churches have. And traditionalists are what they're 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 um, you know withstanding him to the face, as Paul said about Peter. Um, so there are major problems with that. But now I want to get into the scriptures, and then I'm going to talk about two things that we have some major disagreements with that we would not agree with. Um, first off, to say, when we say that the scriptures are the only authority that is infallible for faith and um, for faith and morals, we are not saying there aren't other authorities. We know um, most people do acknowledge, that some people don't, but if they, in their lives they do acknowledge. So in scripture itself— there are authorities that are given to us. So, for one, in the uh, Galatians 6.6, 6, there are what's called the catechons in the Greek, and that is there are the catechized, those are the students, and then there are the catechizers, those are the teachers. And so there are teachers within the church that has authority over you. There are devotees to the church. In 1 Corinthians 16.15-16, through 16, Paul says that the house of Stephanus, that we will submit to them. He, he commands the church at Corinth to submit to them because they are devotees to the church. So that's an authority. There are also the overseers or the bishops or the presbyters. That is the preachers within your church. You are to um, 
adhere to what they say. We find this in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13. In Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, children are to submit to their parents. In Romans 13, 1, people are to submit to their um, civil authorities. So all of these authorities have authority. The difference is we would say that they derive their authority from the scriptures and from God himself, and why the scriptures They're not equated to God, but they are from God in that they are the only thing that we have of revelation that would be called God-breathed. So in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says that the scriptures are given to us as inspiration from God. That is the the term God-breathed. And so I'm going to read that for you real fast because I think it, it also speaks to the sufficiency or the completeness of scripture. Um. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every work. And so there's no reason to think that we need another authority. What we need is authorities who preach the gospel and the word of God. We don't need authorities to be able to infallibly make commandments over us in that way, because even though they may have the Holy Spirit, you may, you have a pastor, your parents, whoever, they may be saved people, they have the Holy Spirit, they can still make mistakes, not because the Holy Spirit is making mistakes, but because in their flesh they make mistakes, and the, they can make up a, a thing that uh, they will try to hold you to and say you're not saved if you don't do X, Y, and Z. But if the scriptures don't say it, we have to be able to hold everything that is said against the rule of the scriptures. So that is the first point. There is an acknowledgement of other authorities, it's just they're not infallible authorities. The second point is, in 1 Timothy 3, 14-16, it does say the church is the pillar of truth, which is what a lot of these guys, um, east or west, would claim means that the church is infallible because it's the pillar of truth. But the pillar of truth from my perspective, and I think this is the general perspective of uh, the uh, Protestant thinkers, and mainly also, I think, from the Church Fathers, we could show that, but I'm not going to go into that. But it says, I hope to come to you soon. I'm writing these things so that you, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the Church of the Living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. So what is the uh, the pillar of truth? The pillar of truth is the witness and the proclaimer of that truth. So what is the church meant to be? The witness of what God has done for mankind. Right? So there's a witness, and then he says, Jesus, he was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. And so his, his manifestation is his incarnation. His vindication in the Spirit is his resurrection. His being seen by angels is his ascension into heaven and holding that over all of the powers and principalities. It talks about that in, in Colossians 2. His proclaiming among the nations then is our proclamation and our preaching that has gone out since then. He's him being believed up on in the world and taken up into glory. Um, is our proclamation. So the church is the witness and the proclaimer of the things already done. So the idea that we would need, say, a um, statement about how to be more pious by um, praying to saints 
is something that is not necessary or something that the church even has the authority um, to proclaim over other people. Everything that has been taught, and this is where I would slightly agree in some way, although they wouldn't say I'm agreeing in the same way, the idea that the oral tradition and the um, written uh, the, the written scriptures we have are the same. I believe they are the same. I don't believe that the apostles taught the veneration of Mary or the prayers to Mary or the assumption or the immaculate conception of Mary. I believe everything that we have in the scriptures are identical to what they taught uh, verbally and orally to the churches. And so we know the scriptures came after there was teachings, right? We know that things that happened on Pentecost, they were not being written down at that. They were written down later by um, uh, Luke. And then we have other uh, gospel writers who wrote later on. <coughs> Excuse me. So the oral and the written teachings are identical in that way. And so there's no need to add on things later on that are not in the scriptures because the apostolic tradition is identical to what we have in the scriptures. And so that's how we would see that, that there is no need because the scriptures are allow us to be complete, a complete person in Christ, according to 2 Timothy 3.16. And what that pillar is, is not that we can then develop things into other things like icons. So we take the doctrine of the incarnation and develop it into icons. What we do is we express and proclaim, right? We are witnesses to that truth by the way that we live, and then we proclaim by word the gospel of the incarnation. We don't start venerating icons uh, uh, in terms of it being a development of the uh, doctrine of the incarnation. And so we would disagree with that. And then I've already mentioned this, what we are supposed to be built off of. Uh, So it says, you are no longer strangers and aliens. This is in Ephesians 2.20. Uh, but you are fellow citizens and saints in the members of the household of God. This is our foundation, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And so the church does not decide what's in the scriptures. The scriptures decide what the church is. Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the scriptures precede the church itself and that's we, we find this in um second peter 316 we'll find that uh even at that time there were already uh new testament verses or new testament writings that were considered scripture so um uh, count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved pr- uh, brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do other scriptures. And so, for one, he's saying that it is difficult to understand, but it's also something that can be used in an appropriate way, that we have the ability to understand them because they're clear. And that's one of the things I think separates the Protestant position from a lot of the Roman uh, positions and the Eastern position. The idea of the perspicuity or the clearness of Scripture itself means that we can know what the gospel of Jesus Christ is, and other people can know from it from reading the scriptures and from the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the leading of the Holy Spirit within the individual, not um, from a particular hierarchy that exists 
that tells us everything that we need to know. So those were considered scriptures, even in the time of the apostles. Peter, being still alive, considers the writings of Paul scriptures. And he considers that people who are twisting them because they're difficult are, in fact, the same ones who twist the Old Testament because they say they don't understand them and they have their own um, ways to view them. So in matters of faith and morals, I think with regards to the gospel, there is there is one way to see it, right? When we read something like 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, Paul tells us what the gospel is. And so there's no reason to say that we are going outside of the faith by not believing um, that that Mary was assumed into heaven. That That's not outside the faith. Now, are there things we can have an argument about because they're difficult? I think yes, but there are some things we can't, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into that, but there's a third point that I want to talk about. So the first point is there's there are other authorities, but those authorities derive their, their authority from God, and the only um, rule we have that is God-breathed is not the church, is not all of the other authorities that exist, but is Scripture alone. Um, the second point is the church being the pillar and the truth means that they are the witness and the proclaimers of the truth that has been passed down to us in the Scriptures because the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, which are the Scriptures. Uh, the third one is that there is actually a relationship to tradition uh, described in the Bible. Jesus came up against this in Matthew 15. Uh, I'm going to go to Matthew 15, 1 through 9. Um, there were those who sat in the seat of Moses. There was a, a tradition, a Mosaic tradition that passed down. And it says, Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, He says, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Honor your father and mother. And whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father and mother, what would you have gained from me is given to God. He needs not honor his father for the sake of your tradition. You have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. And so now the Roman church would say that... um, these were the commandments of men. Uh, but the thing is, is that the Pharisees would not have viewed this as a commandment of men. They would not have viewed what they were doing as being in any way a contradiction or intention with the Scriptures. They would have viewed their, um, let me get this real fast. They would have viewed their tradition as being divine. And so I'm going to read from you. At that time, there was Hillel and uh Shammai were two schools that were working in the first century there, and they believed that there was a there were two Torahs. There was an oral Torah, and there was a written Torah. And the written Torah was passed from Moses down to Aaron, and the uh, and so on through the Levites. But the oral Torah was passed in another way. And I'm reading from the ninth tractate, the Avot, which is the wisdom of the fathers from the Talmud here, which is a writing down uh, from the Mishnah and the Gemara of uh, oral traditions it says this in chapter one moses received the torah at sinai he's they're talking about the oral torah he transmitted it to joshua joshua to the elders the elders to the prophets and the prophets transmitted it to the men of the great synod they said these three things be cautious in judgment raise many disciples make protective measures for the torah so 
the written was passed from Moses to Aaron onto the Levites. The oral was passed from Joshua to elders, to prophets, to the people of the great synod, which we find later uh, was sort of the basis of the Sanhedrin. It was made up of these sort of um, ecclesiastical uh, authorities, both Pharisee and, and Sadducee. Now, for the, for the Pharisees, they believed that this oral tradition passed down, it came from Moses, and therefore it was also divine. And what Christ is saying is that, no, your oral um, traditions come in con- uh, conflict with the scriptures, and so you're going against the scriptures. And so that's, that is the same claim that we would make to both Rome and to the East, that there are things that you are making commandments that are in conflict with Scripture, and you are making them the commandments, uh, you're holding people to the commandments of men. So, for instance, during the time of the uh, Reformation, things like indulgences, there is nothing in Scripture that you can pay your way out of receiving any sort of temporal judgment from God. Uh, Now, they were saying it for purgatory, which we also uh, reject purgatory, but even in regards to other temporal judgments you receive here on earth, you can't just pay off God and and get away from from judgments uh, from your sin. So we would reject that. We would say these are the commandments of men, and they were using that money to enrich themselves. And so... And, and, and every church, uh, everything that grows into an institution, it grows larger, particularly ones who get close to the state, get rich and wealthy, and so all sorts of corruption comes in. You could say that we all need a reformation. You could say the, the Southern Baptist needs a reformation right now. We all, we all need to be in a constant state of reforming. Uh, but we can see the way that Jesus tr- treats the scriptures in relation to the traditions, right? He sees that he doesn't say that traditions in and of themselves are wrong. We all have our own traditions. And he later says, people in the seat of Moses, you ought to do what they say because they hold a certain amount of uh, authority in Matthew 23. Now, it is n- there is no seat of Moses in the scriptures anywhere, but that was something that developed over time, and they had a certain amount of authority, so we should be respectful to it. But that doesn't mean that when you uh, measure it up against the scriptures that you take the side of tradition. You should always take the side of scriptures first. And if that thing is wrong or goes against scripture, you should remove it from uh, your rituals or your tradition or however you um, perform your religious life. So to end, I'm going to go two things that we would um, that we would reject from uh, from both the East and the West. So I'm going to start with the East here. Um, where are we at here? 69, 67 here. Okay, for one, the cult of the saints. This is something that's very prominent within the East. And uh, it's something that we uh, pretty wholeheartedly reject. So the cult of the saints occupies a considerable place in Orthodox piety. The saints are intercessors and are protectors in the heavens. And in consequence, living and active members of the church militant, uh, their blessed presence in the church manifests itself in pictures and relics. They surround us with a cloud of prayer, a cloud of glory of God. This cloud of witness does not separate us from Christ, but brings us near and unites us to him. The saints are not mediators between God and humans. This would set aside the unique mediator, which is Christ, but they are our friends who pray with us and aid us in our Christian ministry and in our communion with Christ. Sometimes venerations of saints is seen as approaching the pagan cults of heroes or demigods that would be equivalent to pagan polytheism. Now listen to what this this um, 
particular writer from the Eastern Orthodox, this is from Sergius Bulgogov, says about comparing it with uh, paganism. He says, the parallel is not all as far-fetched as it seems. Paganism, with its superstitions and delusions, could have contained important premonitions or foreshadowings, which for divine reasons remained unknown to the Old Testament church. And this may be the case of the veneration of demigods who were truly gods by grace and who were known to the pagans world but unknown to the Old Testament Judaism. It would have been a temptation beyond its strength for Judaism to diverge towards polytheism from the strict monotheism in which the chosen people were nurtured. Only after the coming to Christ could the unbridgeable chasm, as well as the closeness between Christ and those who belong to Christ, become clear. The dogmatic basis for the veneration of saints lies precisely in this link. The church is the body of Christ, and those who are saved in the church receive the power and life of Christ. They are deified. They become gods by virtue of grace. They become Christ in Christ Jesus. Now, the scriptures tell us who we are to pray to. We are to pray to God the Father in the name of Jesus. Um, this is explicit, and a place like Luke 6, we could go into that. So that's number one. Number two, um, it does, even by their own admission, um, it is linked to paganism. Uh, it is uh, something that pagans did do. And so we would say that the church were involved in uh, forms of paganism. Now, we find this in Colossians 2, where the worship of angels had already began in the time of the apostles. So it's not like there's this belief that the apostles died and then some great form of heresy started. Heresy already existed within the churches. We find the issue with Galatians uh, going back towards uh, an older type of Old Covenant Judaism, and we find it in um, Colossians going toward this sort of mystic paganism. They were already worshiping angels, and they were already trying to achieve mystic experiences through different ascetic practices. And Paul was saying, you should be removed from the elements of this world. The praying to the saints are an elements of this world. We are to pray to one God, who is God himself. We are to pray in the name of Jesus Christ, who is the one mediator between man and God, according to 1 Timothy 2. And so we don't accept this at all. And a major part of this, um, let me see, I'm going to read... Let me see, we got 136 and 145 here. Yeah, okay, at the Antiphogian Synod. Now, Photians caused a bit of a schism. And uh, at the Antiphogian Synod, this is what it says. We prescribe the veneration of the holy icon of our Lord Jesus Christ, rendering to it the same honor as the books of the Gospels. So that's where they went with icons. That's how far down the line this got. This was in the, uh, I believe, the 8th or 9th century. It says, For just as by the letters of these latter we all come to salvation, so by the actions of the colors and images all, learned as well as ignorant, equally find their profit in what is within reach of all in effect, just as the word is set forth by letters, painting set forth, represents the same things by colors. Hence, this is the big one here, hence, if someone does not venerate the icon, <coughs> sorry, the icon of Christ the Savior, he may be unable to see his face at the second coming. So, the um, command to venerate icons is now uh, something dogmatic, or it will affect your salvation. You will not be able to see Christ at his second coming. This is something, um, in terms of believing the scriptures, this is an unacceptable uh, dogma that we simply cannot adhere to. Now, that's from the East, so we reject the Seventh Ecumenical Council. 
Now, from the west, uh, we're going to go here in terms of the mass. Now, in the mass, they claim transubstantiation, which is uh, most um, <clears throat> most people in the Protestant world would reject. Um, but it's really trying to explain a mystery and uh, going into all of what it's supposed to mean. It's sort of uh, it's it's complicated about uh, the substance changes, but the the ac- or the substance changes into Christ's body, but the accidents remain the same. And all it's 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 very uh, philosophically convoluted. But this is the main issue with regards to the Catholic Mass and why it should be rejected by all those who believe in Scripture. It says the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same. The same now offers through the ministry of priests, who then offered himself on the cross. Only the manner of offering is different. And since in this divine sacrifice which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and offered in an unbloody manner. This sacrifice is truly propitiatory. That is a major problem for uh, people believing in the scriptures because the reason why the sacrifice of Christ was so unique and and perfect is because it reject it, it doesn't have to be made again, right? So there's only one um, sacrifice. So this is what it says in Hebrews 10, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not cease to be offered. And the since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there's a, rem- a reminder of sins every year, for it's impossible for the blood of, of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken up pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he adds, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There are no more sacrifices for sins, and uh, to discuss that sacrifice, what was it? Was it propitiatory? According to um, 1 John uh, 2.2, 2, um, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of of the whole world, we go to First John four, uh, ten. It says, uh, "In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. His sacrifice was once and for all. So, in doing the Mass, you are making a propitiatory sacrifice uh, before God the Father of Christ's." the son again and that they claim that they call down they have the power to call down christ's body into the wafer which is the eucharist um that is something that biblically we can't accept we are not re-sacrificing christ for a propitiation uh it is not a propitiatory offering the reason why christ's offering uh was perfect was because it was only done once right that which is imperfect has to be done over and over again so those are two major points we would reject and i'll end on this and i think this is the major one uh that paul teaches in galatians 1 8 and 9 and uh, this goes a long way i think 
in discussing Scripture and why we think what was taught orally was the same thing as taught in Scriptures. He says, but even if we, speaking of himself and the teachers who were with him, the apostles, or an angel from heaven. So these are people of authority, and this is why I think the congregation does have a certain amount of authority. Even we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you. Let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now we say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And so we cannot accept things that are beyond the teachings of the apostles. We cannot accept that if people don't venerate icons, they won't be saved. That is an addition to the scriptures. We cannot accept that we are continually making, or that there is a priestly caste of people who are continually making um, propitiatory sacrifices to God the Father. That is against the scriptures. That is against the gospel. And so that is why we believe scripture is the one sole infallible rule uh, for faith and morals, and uh, I believe that's the right um, perspective, but that's where there's some differences, and um, I just wanted to go over that. I'm still a little bit sick. I'm coughing a little bit, but I just wanted to go over that. I know this one's long, but if you liked it, hit the like button, uh, support if you want, and uh, thank you, and I'll talk to you next time.